we want to take time as we transition out of our greeting, out of our, out of our time of seeing one another and catching up, to quiet our spirits, to open our hearts and our spirits to discernment, to the word that's coming. And so we're going to do this in a little bit different way today. I'm going to invite us into a time of silent reflection. And then Alex is going to strike this bell three times. And as you do that, as you hear that, this is reflective of the Trinity being among us. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit surrounding us, indwelling us, being part of us. And then as the last reverberations of that leave the room or die down, uh, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. And the prayer will be on the screen so that we can follow that um, together. So Holy Spirit, you are here. We didn't come here out of our own effort to do good works, to check a box. We came here to encounter you, the Holy God, the living God, the author of creation, the object of our faith, the sustainer of our lives, the one who holds everything together. And so we quiet our hearts and our minds and our bodies before you, God, and you alone. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome, everyone. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here. We're really glad you're here with us this morning, or if you're listening on podcast, um, man, we're glad that you've chosen to tune in and be here today. You know, if you Google, we're, we're in this Reformation study, and today our, our topic is sola fide, or by faith alone that we're saved. And if you Google faith, though, if you go out there and do a search, it's amazing what comes up. I, I was really kind of unprepared as I did that, just as a way, oftentimes I'll check things to make sure that I'm not missing something culturally that's going on out there. So I Googled faith, and I came up with all kinds of Joel Osteen, all kinds of Zig Ziglar, uh, all kinds of Norman Vincent Peale, uh, a whole, even a little Steve Jobs was thrown in there uh, as people who were 
giving their idea on faith, giving their definitions of faith. And it was kind of a lot of ruby slipper religion. A lot of, a lot of let's just click your heels and have a, you know, believe for the best, hope for the best, or believe in yourself. I mean, it was a real mushy kind of self-centered response when you Google faith. Now, you dig around a little bit, you'll, you'll find some more orthodox terms. But I thought about this in one way. When we talk about faith, we have to make a differentiation. Are we going to walk in the ruby-slippered religion of self-help, of prosperity gospel, of consumer religion? Or are we going to take on the dusty sandals of discipleship, of following Jesus? that comes through faith. Now, this is not a small matter at all. When you talk about all the things that we're going to talk about, sola scriptura, sola gracia, sola fide, sola Christus, these these elements that that define the Reformation teachings, this one, this idea of faith alone was the thing that drew all the Reformers together, on which there was unanimity of understanding and declaration. Small differences in application, yes. But even more than all the rest, this idea of being made right with God by faith alone was unanimous among the Reformers. But that doesn't mean it didn't cost them something. In fact, as we study some of these these heroes of the Reformation or significant figures as we go through this study, we'll see that many of them paid a terrible, terrible personal cost. And that may sound strange to us, right, in modern-day Americans, modern-day the West, that, that for declaring a doctrinal statement or a theological idea, you could have all your possessions taken away. You could be even executed. But that's what happened. So when we're looking at this, we need to understand that what we are experiencing and studying today cost people dearly. It cost them careers, it cost them families, and for some of them it cost them their lives. So as we dig in and as we pray this morning, let's give attention to what was so precious to them that they loved it even more than their own lives, and give it the seriousness it deserves. Lord Jesus Christ, you're here with us, and I pray that this morning your word would be spoken with clarity. That nothing that I say or do or suggest would distract from your truth. That you would give us as a body the spirit of discernment. That all of us together, reasoning this out together, in the power of the Holy Spirit in committed community, would understand and know the depth and height and breadth and width of your love for us. And the enormity of your gospel message. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're studying, like I said, sola fide. That's the the theme this week. And and that's just by faith alone. The idea that that it is faith alone which saves us. Now, you have to ask kind of, well, what's faith then, right? What is this faith? Because, like I said, at the start, you Google it, you get all kinds of things. Well, one thing I know it's not. It's not this. It's not a board game. 
Uh, this was an interesting deal. We, you can actually have the Reformation board game, Sola Fide, to play. But it's not that, however interesting that would be. But it's this idea that faith is something that roots, that is rooted in the right message. It's doing things the right way for the right reason and towards the right end. So that's what we want to look at today. And, and there's two verses that we're going to look at. The first one is in Romans. Romans 1, and Paul states it this way. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. This summation seems to have been clear from the very start, from the earliest epistles. In our next verse in Galatians, and, and I just need to make an aside here, if you weren't here, or even if you were here, when Norma Farthing taught on Galatians, um, we have that in our, in our podcast archives. Go back and listen to it. She does an, a masterful job of dealing with this text and a few other things. But we're going to look at it for, through a very simple eyes of, of Paul's argument for faith here this morning. So he starts in Galatians 3. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ would, was vividly portrayed and crucified. The one thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Although you began with the Spirit, now you are trying to finish by human effort. Have you suffered so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? Does God then give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so then understand that those who believe are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel to Abraham ahead of time, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who believe are blessed along with Abraham the believer, for all who rely on doing the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, cursed is everyone who does not keep the law on doing everything written in the book of the law. Now it is clear, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteousness, because the righteous one will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. But the one who does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we could receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, we're going to talk just for a minute about the situation the Reformers were in, but as we were studying this week, it became quickly evident this was not a new fight. So the Reformers are in this period of time where we're organized, the, the hierarchy of the church had become so corrupt, had become so weighted down with, with centuries of teaching and, and manipulation, and there was political elements, and there was economic elements, and there was all these things going on, that they were trying to reclaim this idea, this, this New Testament faith, or this original faith, this practice of it. 
but they surely weren't the first. It's striking that Paul's barely out of town. Paul has barely left town, and he's starting his own reformation. You see, we all so quickly gravitate back. This is not just a problem. This is not just a problem that they had with the Catholic Church at this certain time. This is, this is our problem. Is we love to receive the gift of the Spirit. We get desperate. Or we have a revelation. Or someone introduces to us. And we receive that thing that God is doing in us. And then literally before the door slams, we're gravitating back to the old ways. Earning doing things in our own effort, trying to take control, trying to manipulate, falling back into the systems of threat and bribe, of transactional religion and doing it. Now, it came to a culmination or a, or a crisis point here with the Reformation that we're studying in these authors. But listen, it comes to a crisis in me almost every day. Almost every day, I have to choose where am I going to place my faith? Is it going to be in myself? Is it going to be my own efforts? Is it going to be what I can do? What I can accomplish? What I want to have happen? Or is it going to be what is the Spirit doing? And trusting that God will do what God says God will do. That God will provide. As Abraham said, you know, Paul talks about the faith of Abraham here. What was, what was Abraham's faithful declaration? God will provide. Every day, I have to make that choice. Now, the big idea here is that faith, this faith, is not something that is just relegated to a philosophical or mental ascent. But faith instead roots itself in the right message doing the right things the right way for the right reason towards the right end. And, and let's look at each one of those things. So what is, the, what is this message we're putting in? What are we trusting God to provide? What, what do we want God to do? What is it that we say, I believe God will provide? Well, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Scott McKnight, in his masterful work called, called a, a Community Called Atonement, he defines icons as this. We are icons. God-oriented, self-oriented, other-oriented, cosmos-oriented, missional beings designed to love God, self, and others, and to represent God by participating in God's rule in this world. That's who we're designed to be. We talked about it in Genesis. We are designed to bear the image of God, each and every one of us, everyone in this room. We're image bearers. And in original creation, in Jesus, or in original, as Jesus originally created us in Genesis, we're whole. We understand ourselves. We understand other people. We understand the world. We understand God. We're in right relationship. We're in shalom with all those relationships. But sin has cracked that. Our sin, the sin of the world, has cracked that icon. So now we're broken image bearers. 
But that's where the gospel comes in. Because he goes on to define the gospel as this, as the work of God to restore cracked icons. In the context of a community of union with God and communion with others for the good of others in the world. Our faith is that God is doing what God promised to restore us, to deliver us, to heal us, to provide for us, to restore those broken relationships between ourselves with God, between ourselves with ourselves, between our God, ourselves with other people, and between ourselves with other pe- with all of creation. That's what God is doing. Our salvation is so much more than a ticket to heaven, a get out of hell free card. It's so much more than that. But it's hard to see at times. It's hard to see when we lose sight of that, then we start to see our faith kind of as a mutual, as, as mutually exclusive from good works. And let me tell you this, I thought about this too. So you, there's kind of two camps on this thing. One is going to be the people that say, hey, look, works have nothing to do with it. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You're saved. You prayed the prayer. You saved. You're saved. And the other people who say, no, you have to do good works. God, like, God gives grace to those who are working. God helps those who help themselves. Kind of that idea of works. Listen, those are just two sides of the same coin of misunderstanding faith. There's a great book that I've been reading through the study called Getting the Reformation Wrong. And it talked about how we, in our modern day, have broken works, good works, works of righteousness, however you want to say it, apart from faith. Like we've taken them and put them so far, we're so scared of it being tainted, our faith with any kind of works religion, we reject works altogether. Well, the reformers, that, to them, that was unimaginable with that. Um, as we introduce you to some people, I want to introduce you to this guy. This is Menno Simons. Anybody know Menno Simons? Anybody familiar with that? Where's Tim Foster? Tim Foster ought to know. So Menno Simons was the original, uh, you might have heard the group Mennonites. So he started the Mennonites, and he was an Anabaptist. So in the Reformation, you had your magisterial reformers. You had Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and these guys who, who really, they, were, they never wanted to leave the Catholic Church. They just wanted the Catholic Church to be reformed. But then you had this other group, the Anabaptists, or the radical reformers, and they were like, hey, the whole thing's corrupt. Like, there's no saving it. So they went off. Simons was a Anabaptist. But he said this about faith. He said, true evangelical faith cannot lie dormant. It clothes the naked. It feeds the hungry. It comforts the sorrowful. It shelters the destitute. It serves those that harm it. It binds up that which is wounded. It has become all things to all creatures. And on this, the reformers were united. That yes, it was faith alone, but faith is never alone. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday to hear... Brother John Farthing's message on grace, go and listen to it. If you were here again, go listen to it again. He described in such eloquent terms, in a way that clicked for me that it never has, is that when we receive grace, 
then works become the fruit of our relationship with God, not the root, not the thing that we're trying to earn our relationship with God, but it becomes the fruit of that. That echoes what all of the reformers thought. They, they made the assumption that if you received by grace through faith this, this relationship with God, that good works would just naturally come. And indeed, that was the charge against them. That's, that's what the Catholic Church, that was the biggest charge that the Catholic Church had against the Protestants. They said this, if you tell people, if you tell Jim back there that, hey, it's by faith alone that he's saved. He doesn't have to do penance. He doesn't have to do good works. He doesn't have to go off and be a monk. He doesn't have to pay his tithe. If you, if you tell Jordan that, she's just going to go do whatever she wants. Nobody's going to do any good works. It'll be chaos. People will be doing whatever they want. The church will fall apart. Nobody, nobody will do anything good if you don't threaten them or bribe them. That was their charge against the Protestants. The Protestants' response, of course, is, well, listen, good works aren't being done now. You may have moral actions. You may have people who are, who are doing good things, but they're doing them for the wrong reasons. And if you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, you're still lost. It corrupts it all. And the only way that you can truly do good works is if you understand that it's because of what you've already been given, not because of what you hope to receive in exchange. What would it be like? Just a... Just a personal aside, what would it be like if we treated our relationships with each other like that? How radically different would our world be if we saw someone and we saw them as a gift, we saw them as something that was already given to us, and our interactions with them, with them weren't based on what we hoped to get from them, of what utilitarian value they were to us of how good they made us feel or did. What about your marriage relationship? What would it be if you woke up every day and going, I have been given the man or the woman who is the best and highest good for me. I have already received this love through this person. And that everything that I do during this day is a free gift offering for what I've already received. How radically would that change our marriages? Would that change our families? Would that change our societies? That was the vision of reformers with this idea of faith. Indeed, that's the vision I think that God has for us all. Is that we understand so fully what we have already received by faith, trusting that God has done, is doing, and will do everything that God has promised. That everything we do as a result is gift, is grace back with that. It's interesting to think how we got to where we are right now, modern evangelical American culture, where we even have to talk about this, where we have to define this, where we have to constantly justify, hey, people, you're followers of Jesus, you need to do good things. 
And you can look at it, there's kind of three reasons that I've, three sources for this that I've discerned and, and read about and looked at. You know, one of them was this idea that came about a couple hundred years ago with the revivals. Revivalists would go town to town and they weren't part of a church and they would they refine their message down to, hey, just prayer, prayer, walk an aisle, get baptized and you're good with God. You don't need to do anything else. And in a way, that's true. But divorced from community and divorced from discipleship, what you get is people who have said some kind of thing, they prayed, prayed some kind of prayer, but there's really no life change with it. And when you do that in the context of, of individualism, how it's came to be, that really all that matters is me. I go to church for me because I don't want to go to hell when I die or I want to feel better about myself or I don't want my kids to be, you know, messed up. So I'm just going to go because it's all about me. Well, that further separates that idea of works out from faith. And then we take all that and we, in our consumer culture, we packaged it up real nice. Like we package faith, we've made it relevant. We've, we've got it down to five, five verses out of Romans is all you got to know. Get to heaven. And what we've done is we've inoculated people against the true faith. We have inoculated people. We've sold them something that is like the thing, but is not the thing. The reformers were decidedly against that. It's interesting to look at the Great Commission. You know, we, my wife and I have been involved in, in missions for a number of years, and we live in a community where there's a lot of missions activity around here. And yet we seem to miss the very basis of that. We use the, the verse in Matthew at the end of Matthew as the prompting for all our mission efforts, right? Go and make converts. Oh, wait. It's go and, go and get people to pray the prayer, right? Just... That's a very different thing, Pete. <laughs> We've taken that as, hey, go get people to join your club. Go get people to assent to your prayer. And it's plain as day. It's go and make disciples. Let's go and make disciples with that. And that's the gospel. The idea of the gospel is this fourfold restoration of ourselves, of our relationship to God, the restoration of ourselves to ourselves. The restoration of our relationship to others and all of creation. We are called to be recreators with God. How different this is from the message, the ruby slippered religion of prayer, prayer, and be okay. Yeah, it's hard because of the things I mentioned. Yeah, it's hard because of the misuse of the revivalist and individualism and consumerism. But I think there's another reason here why this is hard. I think there's another reason why we receive the message of faith but so quickly turn to the message of works again. And I think it's this. John Wesley said this a long time ago. He said, nothing is more repugnant 
to capable, reasonable people than grace. See, when I have to put my faith and say God will provide, what that means is, what I'm saying is, I can't. When I have the faith to say God will provide, I am declaring that I am incapable of doing that thing on my own. I have to admit that I need God, that I'm not in control, and that when I am in control, I mess it up. And so faith superficially sounds great, but we're just hardwired to turn away from it. Because when we encounter grace, it offends us with that. Will Willeman went on to note about that. He said, it's tough to be on the receiving end of love. God's or anybody else's. It requires that we see our lives not as our own possessions, but as gifts. This is often the way God loves us. With gifts we thought we didn't need, which transform us into people we didn't necessarily want to be. Listen, this reformation, this proclamation of faith alone is not something that we just needed 500 years ago. And then, man, we got it. And we're good now. This is a message of reformation that each one of us needs every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Paul encountered it when he wrote his very first letter that he ever wrote was back to a church that were already turning away from grace, from faith. Each of us will walk out of these doors today back into a world that demands performance, that demands you perform, that demands you operate by the law of threat and bribe, of transactional relationships. You cannot escape it. And that's why each one of us needs to constantly be in a state of reformation into the image of God, taking on those dusty sandals of discipleship so that it is by faith alone that we live. Thank you for being here. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I wish I could tell you it was easy. I wish I could tell you that this message is going to do it for you. <laughs> that if you listened intently today and you took notes, then you got it. But it's not enough. It's never enough. We constantly need to be reformed and reforming. And part of that, like I said, is this admission that we don't have it together, that we need grace. We need God to do something, provide something for us that we cannot get anywhere else. And that starts at this table. That starts when we come up and we take the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus in communion. It starts when we are reminded again that God's provision for us is here, available, and forever. So here at Grace Church, we don't dismiss by rows. We don't um, limit it to people who are members. 
If you're here wanting to receive the grace of Jesus Christ, you are welcome at this table. And as you feel led, approach the table and you'll be served with that. We also take up an offering during this time to share in the, in the material needs of this church and, and the people we support around the world. And then also use this time to reflect. To make those commitments now, because when you walk out, it will only get harder. Make the commitments now to walk in faith, to live by faith, to receive grace. And then set yourself in a habitual pattern of being discipled in community and being reminded of those commitments. Thank you.